Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. How are you doing right now? I don't know. I don't know how much you can talk about how you're doing. Like, you have this feeling like the world is on the brink of World War III. And we're like, oh, so how are you? <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, I don't know. Can and, we and do by- small talk in this sort of tense situation? It's very difficult. And also, by the time people hear this, who knows, um, Russians may have invaded Ukraine. It could happen. Uh, I thought your answer to that question was going to be that you are excited because I'm quite excited by our very special guest on the podcast. Yes, it took us, what, a year to bring him on? Um, And yes. It took us a year, but he has been a devoted listener to our podcast, which is why that adds an extra uh, delight to having him on as our main guest. So it will be David Rebnick, the uh, editor of The New Yorker, the um, best publication in the English language. I hope I'm not insulting other publications in the English language. Uh, and we have so much to talk about. You know, he is a Russian expert and we want to talk about Russia, but we want to talk about a lot of other things about Israel and the U.S. and uh, the Jewish world and, uh, and The New Yorker itself. Uh, I think we have a lot to talk about. David Remnick, I think probably one of the most highly regarded journalists in the world. And my formulation is that The New Yorker is the uh, premier weekly magazine in the world, thereby passing no judgment on other perhaps (laughs) daily newspapers. Uh, But yeah, a huge privilege to have David Remnick on Unholy. David, we are so honoured and uh, happy that you're on Unholy. I'm delighted to be here, your loyal listener. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we're so glad uh, to hear that. We will quiz you at the end of our conversation about our different I, 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 And I would pass, I, I think you will. Say. I think you will. Um, yeah. I, we want to talk, I, I want to kind of start out with talking uh, uh, to you about Russia. Obviously, I, I don't know if you'll shy away from this title, but you are a true Russian expert. Uh, you were, uh, as I said, the Moscow correspondent at the age of 29, I believe, and you all follow Russia to this day extremely closely. You wrote recently in The New Yorker, uh, a piece titled uh, Putin's War Game. And you write of the Russian president, increasingly he has become the philosopher and enforcer of the authoritarian rule. To what end, David? Like, to put it quite plainly, what does Putin want? Well, what does Putin want? You know, like Freud said, what do men want? I, I, <laughs> I, Vladimir Putin is posing himself, and for many years now already, as the clear-eyed realist of the way the world works. And his entire rhetoric is around how hypocritical the West is, how hypocritical liberalism is, how um, the, the West, and particularly the United States, is poses itself as a liberal society. Look at all the problems they have, whether it's poverty, income inequality, uh, and they're a social mess. He's a social conservative. You know, he, he makes fun of the notion of gender fluidity, for example, uh, much less homosexuality. There's l- disdain for that that's open. He is posing himself as a kind of um, uh, social conservative at, at, against a West that's gone way too far toward decadence. That's one thing. And he has made it plain that he, his predecessors were far too weak in the face of uh, Western triumphalism following the period of 1989 to 1991, which is when I happened to live in Moscow. That the whole business of Francis Fukuyama and um, 
Uh, all the social arrangements of the world are now settled into a kind of uh, liberalism. To him is baloney. He is the ultimate um, man of interests. And what you're seeing now on the Ukrainian border, whether he invades or not, is an attempt to reassert Russian power, Russian greatness. Um, and and I, he has managed to establish an image for himself uh, all over the world as the ultimate competent leader, even though Russia, in fact, is quite poor. Um, and it's, you know, if you think there are oligarchies in the West, well, you know, you've never been to Moscow. So that's just the, the beginning sketch of it. It, what interests me is, first of all, that you managed to get through that answer without making the Freudian slip that I often make. And I've even noticed in, a, in an earlier interview years ago that you did, you did it too, which is you didn't describe it as Soviet or you didn't talk about the Soviet tradition or something like that there. Um, well, it's been, it's been, it's a, been long a long time. time. It's been a long time since yeah, Soviet. Except though, I, you know, people sometimes do it where they were talking about the Russia, they, they move seamlessly to the Soviet Union. And the... Yeah, but Jonathan, here's the one thing that Vladimir Putin never cared a damn about is communist ideology. You know, the people in the West were obsessed with communist ideology, communism, Bolshevism, and all the rest. Ideology died to such a degree that even in the Brezhnev era, people didn't take it terribly seriously. Putin is, is, is an extraordinarily, uh, I hate to use the word gifted to give it a positive spin, but he, in, on his own terms, he's, he's quite gifted, but he's constructed something that is not necessarily lasting, which is to say a kind of um, plutocracy or oligarchy, as, you, as people describe it, that's centered on him. And his, his mortality, his existence, everything funnels through him at the, at the top. Um, so, you know, one hears, for example, that there are Russian generals at, at serious ranks who think it is the height of craziness to think about invading Ukraine for all kinds of reasons, military reasons, uh, uh, domestic uh, economic reasons, and so on. But there's no telling um there's no accounting for the feedback system the normal feedback system of of russian politics because it all takes place inside of one square foot which is the head of vladimir putin which and he loves this you know the interesting thing we're looking at it from the outside and everyone is, is using this traditional war jargon right it's like missiles and tanks and soldiers and invasion all this is of course uh qu consequential but if Putin is anything, is, is he's proven to be so sophisticated in the way he operates, right? In cyber warfare, in poisoning his political opponents, right? He has a lot to do with what happened in the U.S. in 2016, a lot to do with what happened in the U.K. in 2016 with, with Brexit. Why do we think necessarily that the only thing he can do to Ukraine is traditional war? He can do all kinds of oh, things. I don't think we, we do. I think that mm -hmm. we're, we're fully aware that his capacities inc include all kinds of weapons and and the, at the very top of his military intelligence apparatus are people who are expert in what's, what we've now come to be accustomed to calling asymmetrical warfare. It's not lost on Putin that even in, that in the face of NATO writ, writ large or the United States that he's not doesn't have superior forces, but he, he marshals them quite cleverly. And I think the West's reaction this time around, as opposed to 2014, is a determination to not be 
you know, won't get fooled again, as the old song goes. That, that what happened with Crimea was a surprise. Took the West by surprise. Took, you know, it, it, one day there were, <laughs> Crimea was, was, um, was Ukrainian, and the next day there were the so-called, remember the, the little green men? Yeah. The unmarked soldiers that everybody in, in Russia pretend we have no idea who these people are. Maybe they got the uniforms <laughs> fact, from a fancy dress store, I think. Exactly, or the Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles or somebody, you know, from, from, that have a green background. And then, and then within a matter of days, it was very clear who it was. And uh, the population was marshaled in, in such a way to keep it quiet. U- Ukraine is extremely poor. Um, and it was accomplished. And so, of course, he has other weapons. He, he could easily uh, try to declare victory through means other than, you know, sending missiles and tanks into, into Kiev. You know, I'm struck by your observation about it's all about the one square foot of Putin's brain, because much of the commentary des- describes, you know, Russia wants this, Russia wants that. And the thing that's missing, I think, from a lot of the coverage is what Russians want we know what he wants but that's, do, that's the whole right but, but from your your <laughs> sense of it what do you think uh, is there any russian as opposed to putin appetite for the grand sphere of influence for ukraine itself for the kind of imperial reach that the soviet period the tsarist period entailed for russia do ordinary russians mm. still have those needs and wants that putin very cleverly plays to or is this really him not in a cartoonish way, no. Um, I think most Russians, like most human beings, crave fairness, stability, economic well-being, the security of their children, health care, all those kinds of things. I don't think Russians wake up in the morning and think about the reestablishment of the Russian Empire or the Soviet Empire. But remember a, a crucial difference here. As chaotic and as screwed up as our own information systems are in Britain or the United States or or Israel or wherever, because for all the factors that we know, it it is immensely different in Russia that that discourse, to use that fancy uh, word of the moment, discourse is, is so distorted by the Russian government's control over so much media, particularly television, which is so dominant. And it, it's very much harder matter to uh, control the internet. But even so-called liberal uh, outlets uh, in Russia, like Medusa, um, uh, which is a terrific online uh, outlet, or a television station called Dost, which means rain, TV rain, um, they have now now are branded by order of the government as as foreign agents. And that puts a crimp in your day, too. So the, the amount of control of uh, information in Russia is really hard for us to understand and, and immensely more sof- sophisticated than the period when I was there. Immensely you more watch Russian propaganda TV a lot, right? Do I they, watch it? Like, that, that's your guilty pleasure, isn't it? You watch well, up Russian to a, propaganda Well, up to a point. It's, you know, it's, it's different than watching cooking videos. But yes, I do watch it. It's very important to do so to, to try to understand it. For, for, look, for a Russia expert, I'm, I, that's hard for me to ex- brand myself because I, I haven't lived there in a long time. And I watch on TV, you know, people going on and on about what Putin's going to do and what he's not going to do. It's really important, I think, for journalists to say when they don't know what's going to happen. 
and I, I get really tired of watching people on morning chat shows and news and op-eds. Putin's going to do this. Putin thinks this. This is just, this is just a, it's bullshit sometimes. We don't, we have to know what we don't know and, and admit it. And if you, you're going to ask me, is Putin going to invade? I do not know. And that should be a starting point of the conversation. And, and that is something that he really seems to uh, relish. The, the, so, the putting off balance of the world, the notion that he's this kind of uh, omniscient uh, chess strategist. So let's talk about something that you won't get on much of the coverage elsewhere. I want to ask you and talk about Jewish attitudes to Russia. My question is, did Jews have a very strange, given that one way or another we all came from Russia, um, do we have a strange sort of Ashkenazi Ashkenazi Jews? Do we have a blind spot there? Look, I think a lot of immigrants have a complicated, willful forgetfulness about their it's not just Jews who emigrated from Russia. Um, look, look at the math and the history is, is, is horrendous. Um, I am sitting here talking with you because a couple of Jewish peasants decided to maybe get out a little early. My relatives were in uh, Vilna, which became Vilnius, which is part of the Russian Empire, and they managed to get to the West in the early part of the century. My other grandfather, Ukraine, you know, very typical arriving in the, in the United States in that period between 1895 and, say, 1910, 15. That's, that's the bulk of American Jewry. And I don't think... Most of us certainly don't think of ourselves as Russian. Um, think of yourselves as, as you know, from Jewish emigration from, from, from there. It's a very different thing. I don't think of myself as Russian. So word on the street is indeed that you are Jewish. I'm, I've been talking. <laughs> How does that, I mean, I'm sorry if this is a silly question. How does that manifest itself? Oh, my God. In, I, 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 how life? can it not? We can, we, didn't, we can add an extra hour for this podcast. Don't worry about I, it. You know, I... I did not grow up in a Jewish town, but I grew up in the Jewish community of those towns. I went to public schools, and I, you know, if if they were five percent Jewish, it was a lot. But on Monday afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, Saturday and Sunday, off to what was called Hebrew school, it was very different from an Israeli existence. You know, and New York, and I, and I live in New York, which is an anomalous city in terms of Jewish population, and. Um, as saturated as I am with, you know, American history and, and, and literature, I, I also read deeply as much as I can in, in, in Jewish civilization. This is my inheritance. How can I reject it? I, you know, I see my, uh, you know, black friends, you know, Henry Louis Gates, I just interviewed for a, an interview uh, um, issue that we've done online. And th- this interview will come out on Sunday. And here's Skip Gates from... West Virginia, from the tiny black community in Piedmont, West Virginia, and he ends up at Yale, and he's introduced to, on the one hand, you know, the canon of what was then completely white American literature, but he wants to read, at the same time, African and African American literature. And how do these two become part of your canon? That, you know, that that search uh, and saturation doesn't end. So that's one thing. And also, as, as a reporter... Um, it's not by accident that I've gone to 
two places abroad quite often. Uh, Russia, where I lived for four years, and then I went back and forth there a lot, and, and, to, and to the Middle East, and particularly to Israel, and which, you know, is a, a source of uh, complication and pain and joy and, um, and real concern. See, to you, so I, think about I, w- I would I think say... About it a lot. Sorry. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, go ahead. No, to you it would be, and to me too, actually, it was automatic and obvious. As you said, it's no coincidence. Of course, if you're strongly Jewish, you're going to be going back and forth to Israel. It's going to be in your head, even in the complicated way you've alluded to there. Do you look at the next generation of American Jews and see a similar automatic connection that one entails the other? Tell us about that. No, and that's a source of great concern to me, and I think it would be a source of great concern to Unite and, uh, and Israelis, I think, but some Israelis that I hear from, in fact, obstinately think it's no concern at all. I, I live in a kind of mixed Jewish existence in the sense that my wife's family is modern Orthodox, and some of them live in Israel. And they're, let's just say that their views, I don't want to caricature them, are, are distinctly more right-leaning than my own. Um, I'm a much more secular Jew um, and grew up, you know, in, in the way I described, uh, with semi-knowledge, you know, not a lot of it, but I'm not just a locks and bagels, you know, ha, you know, jokes Jew. I, it's something that's very serious and permeates um, my thinking and reading and concerns and, and, and all the rest. And I am deeply concerned about the present situation, not only in my own country, deeply concerned, but also about Israel. I think, I think um, each in their own way face um, historical and moral dilemmas and, and crises that um, we risk shoving under the rug for the sake of today's seeming stability. And I think we know what we're talking about here. And I, I worry that particularly the secular, more secular Jews in America, younger generation, see Israel, and this is going to be a painful thing, but it's not a new thing for any any of us to hear, as as a source not of pride or uh, uh, affection, but of embarrassment and um, (sighs) of embarrassment because of the obvious, because of the the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And some of the young are very knowledgeable about it, and some are not. But it is, it is a source of, I think that there are a lot of secular Jews that kind of younger ones uh, that, to put it mildly, don't have any special affection for Israel and just the opposite. And I worry about that. And I, I remember seeing when, um, you know, talking to an Israeli diplomat on the right, um, who we all know, and his disdain for Obama was powerful. And you felt this among the, the, throughout the Netanyahu uh, uh, group. And it was especially focused on the notion that he, quote, unquote, he has no, he has no kishkas for us. He has no, he has no affection for us, which in fact was utterly wrong. In fact, Obama had real concern about Israel but it was the, you know, the Israel that he related to was the Israel of a diminishing left of the David Grossman, you know, 
I'm the also world of Tel Aviv, as it were. Hmm. Um, and I remember writing a piece, a long piece on Haaretz. And not just because it was a newspaper, but because it was, it was representative of a, um, forgive me, maybe I'm wrong, but I think a diminishing uh, Israeli liberal culture that's highly centered in not only Tel Aviv, but for the, as it were, Tel Aviv. And, you know, uh, and knew a lot of people there and, 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 and so on. But it, I wanted to write about it as an, as an entity and also what it represented because you can't, I wasn't just only going to come write about the right, which I also have. And I heard from Obama about this and, you know, he wanted to, and he already knew, but he, he, he was concerned because to him, Haaretz represented the kind of South side of Chicago, uh, milieu of Jews that he knew well. And his, his, you know, his, he was gravely concerned that that was diminishing. And of course he's right. He's right. Does the, Bennett Lapid government changed that in a way, even a little bit. I mean, the fact that really, I mean, there's a diverse coalition and an Arab party, and you know all these kinds of things that sound good for a, better for a liberal ear. Not at all. I mean, you wrote about Naftali Bennett extensively. This doesn't surprise you, as like the centralization. Say, as they say in scoop, only up to a point, Lord Copper. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I think. Look, Net- Netanyahu represented a, a level of obstinance and. Uh, also deception, too. This occasional, you know, rhetoric where to, to please usually periodic U.S. presidents that they, he was interested in solving the Palestinian problem. But he had no int- as we now know, that was really, he was uh, not at all sincere ab- about this. Naftali <laughs> Bennett himself is, has changed a bit. And yes, this is a mixed government and I think that there are people that are slightly encouraged that uh, that Netanyahu is at least for the moment gone. Um, but the underlying conditions and the and the what we read about every day and um, the Palestinian situation is is not a hell of a lot different. It's just not. And and nobody sees any way out and. In fact, what we see is nobody really caring very much, including post-Trump administration, including some Arab states who in the height of realpolitik have, um, for all kinds of reasons, um, shoved the Palestinian question to the side in favor of forming closer relations to Israel, um, which may be stabilizing in some ways, but it certainly leaves the Palestinian people... um, in a fix. And in terms of the echo you saw and you mentioned there between the two countries, the dangers that you alerted us to just a second ago in both countries, I'm not going to ask you which one you think is you know going to get to that endpoint first because that's <laughs> silly. But I'm I'm interested on on, on what the what the warning bells, the warning alarms you've been sounding about America. You have gone. And I think it's been extra shocking because you're, you know, you're not a hot-headed guy. You're a very temp- temperate guy, and yet you've been writing through the Trump period and even since, as if the whole thing is in meaning American democracy is potentially in jeopardy uh, and in peril. I think it's and, an emergency. I, yeah. I, I think I, I think it's an, a prolonged emergency. In other words, 
I never thought, Donald Trump, this is very funny. Uh, you know, those of us who grew, grew up in New York and read Spy Magazine and the New York Post, he was a figure on the jokescape of New York. He was like Leona Helmsley uh, or... <laughs> page you know, six kind of, kind of thing. Page six clownish figures in the New York, uh, 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 you know, uh, lineup. Yeah. But no, he... he my great-grandmother, um, <laughs> um, who was married to what I call the, the, the last Jewish Adolf, um, uh, <laughs> was in... <laughs> they lived in, in Coney Island in Trump housing. And... Um, and, you know, the old man would release these balloons over the beach in Coney Island and the balloons would pop and you'd get a $15 discount on your apartment. These, these, were, these were scam artists, racist scam artists, and who made it kind of big in a glitzy way in New York. But I, I have thought from the first that he was an emergency. And I, you know, on election night, I was at one of those parties you go to because I wasn't kind of working. We had all our Hillary Clinton pieces lined up and ready to go for the first woman president, da-da-da-da. To be sure, she is not this, but okay. Yes. So all those pieces were lined up to be released on the web at you know the moment you know Ohio was called or whatever yeah. the hell it would be. And of course, by about nine something, it was obvious this was, we were in trouble. So from a journalistic point of view, I happily had my laptop, went into this person's kitchen and wrote furiously a piece that was, you're right, far less temperate than I'm usually accustomed to. And it was called An American Tragedy. And it was unbelievably pessimistic about Trump. And the, the real fault of that piece, it wasn't nearly, it, it, it didn't possess nearly enough um, dark imagination to match what the realities would be, how insane the next four years would be, how, how malicious, how malevolent they would be. And the legacy they've left, I think, is even worse, even if he's never elected again. What if he is in 2024? I, I, can we not go there? <laughs> I, but, it's a real, but it's a real concern. You're, you're 100% right, Yonid. I mean, he, he, he could be. He could be. Joe Biden is, is not in a strong position. Um, People are elected. I, I remember George H.W. Bush, who was a reasonably popular president, and there was a kind of downward glitch in the economy, and there was also a third-party candidate, Ross Perot, and that helped Bill Clinton win. It's not because Bill Clinton was some unbelievable political mm -hmm. magician. The conditions were right at a certain time. Shit happens, and it happened. It could break that way because you have a country that's just in a distorted um, state of mind, a large part of it. Um, we don't trust elections anymore. You know, I live in a country that too often has a weird notion of itself as exceptional in so many ways and permanent, as if, as if political systems are permanent, as, as if reasonably good times are permanent. And one of the things that happened in the mid-60s is that for the first time, for the first time in, in, in this constitutional democracy, we had the chance of having a multi-ethnic democracy, which is to say you had voting rights and the Civil Rights Act were passed. But it is, it is entirely conceivable for all the factors you know about voting, about, about the direction of the Republican Party, about many other factors, that that could be short-lived. 
And do I expect there to be a civil war with people in gray uniforms and blue uniforms in Antietam and, you know, a replica of the mid-19th century? No, I don't. But look, but politics and the destiny of a country can turn very, very quickly. In the late 80s, early 90s, look at Israel. Things were going quite well in, in, in and then you started to have this kind of... Um, counter-revolution and, and the Netanyahu campaign and the, the incitement of, 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 of a community, that assassination of Rabin did not come out of nowhere. I'm not saying millions pulled the trigger. I, I, that guy pulled the trigger. You, you go, I mean, Amir pulled the trigger. But, and the repercussions of that assassination in Israel are immense. My concern is that January 6th, which had precursors in things like the McVeigh bombing in Oklahoma City, and the rise of uh, white nationalist politics and militias and the normalization of that kind of political dialogue and political culture is unbelievably corrosive and could lead us to bad places. I'm not saying we're going to resemble somewhere else, but the notion that somehow history is just one giant curve upward is, 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 is a fairy tale. So I didn't, you know, didn't mean to come bum you out, but I don't think I'm delivering any special news. <laughs> I just want to say that the mood was changed because of Jonathan. It is his problem. Yeah. No, okay. Just to put the blame where it should be. Um, can, can, can I ask about, as a paying subscriber, can I ask a little bit about the New Yorker? Is that okay? I, I think I'm entitled having trouble to open, ask. Are you a, having trouble opening the subscription on your end? I'm is waiting for okay? my tote bag. Like, that's, I swear to God, pe people will send me emails and say, you know, I'm having trouble and... I, and I, I get on it. I get on it. I'm a full service editor. I want to hear the top man. I want to see the top man. That's another very Jewish thing, right? Exactly. Let me complain to the exactly. top man. Get me the manager. Exactly. Exactly. Say moi. So as the manager, as the manager, I mean, you, and you've been the manager for 24 years. Yeah, don't tell uh, anybody. As editor. I mean, you have managed to preserve the New Yorker as this, you know, symbol of excellence it really goes against the trends in, in media, right? I mean, there are the 10,000 word pieces, the reporters that work for months on, on a story, the uh, small yet dedicated army of fact checkers. How does all this sustain itself? I mean, I'm trying, the Jewish mother in me wants to ask, David, do you need any money? But really, I mean, <laughs> how is as this? As long as you're subscribing, you need work. <laughs> Just and don't I'm up the subscription I, is what I'm trying to say. I, I'll, I'll make it very qu quick. Our business changed. In other words, um, in the, the Guardian business changed. It went from being a commercial newspaper to something based on a found. Well, it, it, it was based on a foundation from the start. No, it always was owned by a trust. Yeah, always. Yeah, and and something amazing happened in the Guardian more recently, which is to say, you would see at the bottom of articles, please also send some dough. And I thought, oh my god, this signals the end. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan. <laughs> Because people want what you do, they've come through, and that has stabilized the economics of The Guardian. Correct. I'm sure it, it has all kinds of... Yeah. The fact is, our media landscape has been decimated because for a number of reasons that you know. Craigslist first took away all the classified advertising from newspapers, particularly regional newspapers, local newspapers. Then the next step was Facebook and Google scooped up 80% of all the advertising everywhere. So I grew up in New Jersey. And the, every mayor of Newark, New Jersey, went to jail until Cory Booker. Every single one. And why did that happen? I think some, no small part of that. You had rigorous journalism going on on a local level. And now 
that's harder to do. In fact, it's damn near impossible. There are all kinds of, you know, you know, but what you've had is that a, a small number of publications at the top, the New York Times um, is the most blatant example, have been basically able to say, look, advertising's dried up, but you, dear reader, particularly you, prosperous reader, um, need to pony up. If you want this thing at this level, I'm thrilled about the New Yorker's success. I'm thrilled that we're able to do what we're supposed put on earth to do. What concerns me is who's going to send the corrupt judge to jail? Who's going to cover the coal industry in West Virginia? When you took the job as editor back in 1998, you were a you know prize-winning writer. Was there? Did you think, wow, I'm going to take the editor's chair? That means I'm going to give up essentially being the reporter writer but actually as it's turned out it's worked out fine and you do both or or did you know going in i'm going to be able to keep both of these plates well, I spinning ke- I, I i i haven't kept both of them i do write from time to time but they're mostly short things and the thing that i really loved doing as a writer were deeply reported pieces i did maybe once a year i've done something like that as a i have a complicated life i i can't get up and go take a vacation like a normal person. My, my wife and I have three kids and one of them is really v- very profoundly autistic. And so we can't just get on an airplane and go to France for a week for, for a break. It just doesn't, doesn't work. And so my way of getting away a little bit was, you know, to, <laughs> to come to Israel and report about the rise of Naftali Bennett. And, you know, uh, it's an odd life, but that's the one I've got, and I'm deeply privileged. Let me just ask you about two interviewees. I have to ask you this, because sure. if I, a question in my mind when Leonard Cohen died was, who was mm. the definitive or most Jewish artist of the 20th century? And in my mind, it was a competition between him and Philip Roth. And as it happened, <laughs> as it happened, you spent quality time sitting down with both of them. Yeah. And so I want to know what the if you saw anything in the two people had in common, if there was some kind of golden thread between them, what might it have been? Talk. The love of talk. Leonard Cohen was the best storyteller and, and a real literary and spiritual searcher. Very deeply Jewish, um, and at the same time had this kind of Buddhist uh search and he would go away for long periods and, and, and study and exist as a, as a Buddhist monk. Philip Roth was the opposite. Philip Roth was not, was, thought religion was ridiculous. And, but of course he was extremely interested in things Jewish. I mean, you know, read the books, read Operation Shylock, read almost anything. But yeah. that was, that, that cultural and um, he, religion just did not interest him one bit. Other things did. I think uh, I think your piece on Leonard Cohen is my favorite David Remnick. Ah, uh, well, it, it, you actually it's very kind of you, but he he did you need he did all the work. You know, sometimes <laughs> you do a piece and you you're you're squeezing it out and you're getting little bits from them, and then you're you're using your entire brain. I, three quarters of that piece, I, I think I used a tape recorder. But he did all the work. And you compared him to your mother. Right. There's a, a whole paragraph in which he suggests food. There was like, a of bit of food you say, like, There was a lot of, you know, <laughs> would you like a bagel? Would you like a piece of herring? And there was a lot of that. He may just edge it. In my little competition in my head with Philip Roth, the fact that he was stooping you with food, I think maybe may, means that he wins that sort of celestial competition. 
I, I think it's quite possible. Between I think it's, and, 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 and Leonard Cohen, in, in, in the annals of politics, did one of the most sensible things I've ever heard of, which is to say he died on election day before he knew the results. Yes. <laughs> Uh, because he would he would have died all over again. I'm afraid. It brings me to ask a question that I hope will not put us uh, any of us uh, into deep depression. I mean, you've been a writer since what, like high school, basically, maybe since the before? 19th century. <laughs> Jonathan has uh, been a writer, I suspect, <laughs> since preschool. I'm writing for television. I know you both don't no, think no. that's writing, but just bear with me here on this question. You know, we have a great profession. It's standing in the sidelines and writing about the world. Does it matter, David? Does being a writer, is it is it important? I, I don't think necessarily my writing matters, but writing matters, and it it matters to my life. Not what I write, but what I read, which is it, it, I, immeasurably. My life would be just so much poorer without writing. I, it's just it's all I do, and the act of writing is just it, to me is 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 thinking. Um, which is why I'm just okay at it. I, you know, but bit far, far bigger brains, I, 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 I just, it's not about reverence or revering or it's just, it, it is the very best, you know, the cliche, the very best of who we are on those shelves or in your Kindle or, or, or it's everything to me, everything. Did, did you say you're okay at it? You're just okay at it? I'm a, I, you know, Yeah. Yeah, so the man's like first book won a Pulitzer Prize. Like, yeah, the prizes. You know, <laughs> I mean that's ridiculous. But does it? Does it? Does it? Move, but the thing thing I read into your next question there is whether it moves the needle or not. And what I mean by that is, take the example of Trump. We were all writing and writing and writing, and the New Yorker was publishing oh, brilliant, brilliant pieces dissecting Trump and leaving him in shreds, and still he gets elected anyway. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It can't do everything. It can't do everything, but it, 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 it's what we have. It's what we've got. And we also have images and we have the reality of, the plain reality of television. Look, there are, I hate to say this, Jonathan, there are a lot of people who find that those politics attractive because of his ability to play into the... Um, resentments of a lot of people who feel either those similar hatreds or who feel left behind or feel left out um, or who feel that these people are getting, this group is getting a leg up on me and I'm, I'm somehow disadvantaged by it in, the, in, the, in the, what's seen as the um, zero-sum game of economic life. And his ability to play into that was is can't be completely defeated by um you know a, a swift sentence or 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 a well-crafted paragraph or thought but it's what we've got uh, i can't let you go without asking you i mean this has been definitely crazy a crazy yeah. two years and i assume everyone has been working from home i you know television we were lucky enough to have still this newsroom and people still came to work so you had the exchange of ideas or yelling of ideas because it's Israel, but you know what I mean. <laughs> how do you sort of, how does the New Yorker work if there's no physical presence of people in, in the office? Does it still work the same? Well, thankfully, you know, when, when, we, when we all went scurrying for home in, in, in what was it, uh, you know, the winter of two years ago, 
we didn't know how we were going to do it, but it turned out that we had just enough technological apparatus and know-how to get it together and we haven't missed a week or a day. But I, and there's been a lot of meetings as we're on Zoom now, there's been a lot of that. And is there a happier moment in your life for, at sometimes when you press that little red leave button? Because <laughs> it just ain't life. It's just not. And I, I, I fully expect that we'll, that we'll be changed by this experience and that work life will be more flexible. And this will have touched our experience going forward. But I really do miss, even crave, um, not just for the convenience of the manager, but just to crave, you know, three-dimensional conversation and, you know, the incidental conversations that happen in a newsroom or an office or in a theater or, or whatever. You know, even, even, in, even in hard times, the ability to see a friend who's sick or who's lost someone or to deal with life not on the telephone not by text, not by Zoom, is, um, I, I, you know, I can't wait. David, I'm not itching at all to reach for the red button, but um, we've kept you, <laughs> we've kept you uh, a long time. This has been a wonderful conversation. It's and, a great pleasure, uh, and it's a great pleasure to listen to you both every week. We're really grateful. And we're so honored that you do. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you, David. Take care. So that was a very interesting conversation, Jonathan. Yeah, it really was. He's not going to disappoint, is he? I mean, it's sort of maddening in a way. He's not only a brilliant editor and writer uh, and reporter, you're also listening to him just think, how is this guy not, you know, a broadcaster day, you know, day in, day out? Because he would just have cleaned up in that field as well. Just a brilliant talker. And that was a great conversation, I thought. Well, I, I mean, the... Uh, those of us who listen to uh, New Yorker uh, Radio are also kind of contemplating about how does he not talk more on this on this uh, format? But yes, I agree that there were some parts there that you kind of wanted to listen to uh, on and on and ask more questions. And uh, this, these areas, the time is always your enemy. You're like, oh, we're running yeah, out of time. We but. could have easily done hours and hours and hours. Now, we have um, uh, awards to give, um, to hand out. And uh, I'm going to go first, if you allow me to. Of course. So my chutzpah nominee is the man known to Netflix viewers around the world as the Tinder swindler. He is the Israeli Shimon Hayut, who defrauded a, or alleged to have defrauded a series of women. Uh, he met uh, via the dating app to the tune of, it is said, $10 million. He did it by pretending he was the son of the Russian-Israeli diamond dealer Lev Levayev, uh, changed his name, created an alias, and so on. The chutzpah bit is that he has now said, he's thinking of his future, of course, and has now said that, you know, from here on, it's only up. And he has, he fancies a role in politics and says, foreign minister would suit me down to the ground. I think this, Yoni, is, is Olympic levels of chutzpah. A man emerges from jail, we age 31, saying, yeah, I think of all of the senior ministerial portfolios <laughs> available in the Israeli government. The one that uh, tickles my fancy is foreign I minister. I don't know. I mean, the one thing he did is make us look bad, right? I mean, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> make That's Israelis right. look terrible. So I don't know if foreign minister is the best thing for him to do. It may but, not be uh, a natural fit. No, I agree. D- definitely, definitely um, a chutzpah word that is worthy. I want to give the Mensch Award of the week, uh, if you'll allow it. I think I will. The, the woman I want to give this award to is really... The definition of the word mensch, and she is Dolly Parton. Like, who does not love Dolly Parton? Just just right off the bat, right? I mean, in a country so divided like the United States, I assume the only thing that brings everyone together is their love for Dolly Parton. And the reason she is on our uh, mensch list uh, this uh, uh, week is because she said that all of the people who are employed in her theme park, uh, um, Dolly, would Dollywood, yeah. Um, so I'm sorry, I never been. I've never been, but I wanted to be. Um, she said that all of the people who are employed there will receive, uh, will be, uh, will be paid their full college tuition. Uh, they will receive uh, health insurance, and there will be childcare for free for people who have children. That is for the people who are employed in her park. I think she, that is a wonderful example. She's also, I think, she gave more than a million dollars to the vaccine. Uh, uh, um, industry to to uh, basically um, make these and market these vaccines. So that's also a good thing. But she's, you know, she's a wonderful person. I remember a piece in 60 Minutes and when she said she always pretended to be the dumbest person in the room, she was actually the smartest. And that was how she kind of uh, got ahead in life, which I, you know, thought was incredibly No, she is, she is a totally deserved um, legend. Uh, musically, obviously, Jolene, if there's a better pop song or better three-minute song, do direct me to it. Um, but Jolene is a brilliant song. Nine but to also, five. yes, Just kidding. she okay. is. Um, no, I don't think that's in the same league, uh, Yoni. But I think in terms of Mensch, uh, didn't she have this brilliant initiative about making sure every child got access to books? Yes. Uh, and got books that's all over her. the world. I think even in British libraries there are, or British schools, there are books that have come via the Dolly Parton Foundation. I mean, just amazing. Totally deserved winner of uh, Mensch. Um, We're in full agreement today. I'm kind of worried. Yeah, no, we are. I mean, I just love the idea of Leonard Cohen and Dolly Parton both getting uh, (laughs) honourable mention. Um, But I was going to say that we should do our little subcategory of mention. Um, I just want to make a little passing nod to Jay, which is the, a newspaper, the Jewish News of Northern California. Um, the editor there, Sue Fishkoff, uh, arrived at a newspaper back, back some 10 years ago and discovered that the archives of the paper, back numbers going back to 1895 or 1900, uh, were crumbling in old leather-bound volumes in, in, and not even arranged in the office. And they are now available for free online through a whole uh, association with the University of California and others, 127 years of history of the Jewish community in the Bay Area, preserved for future generations. And I just think that's that's just the sort of heritage that easily gets lost. And so a little mention uh, for Jay, um, the Jewish News of Northern California. That was just you trying to hog the mention words again. That's what, what that was when you were calling it the mention, wasn't it? I I'm never liked me sure. without it. <laughs> I also think that maybe we haven't, uh, you know, done sung to a sufficient number of hymns to print journalism in today's podcast. <laughs> so I wanted yet another one. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. I do um, uh, to always like to be on on the mensch action. And I think that's a deserved uh, mention. Uh, but Dolly is our winner. <laughs> okay, so we were, we're wrapping up our uh, program and giving an honorary mensch award to David Remnick just before we leave. Uh, and we're oh, saying yeah, our- big time. 
And we're saying our thank yous to Rom Atik, Leor Friedman, uh, Omer Primat, to Irad Eshel for original music, and our big thanks to Richard Myron. And Jonathan, you have an important announcement for our listeners? I do. We often say, please do contact us. And some people have done that via Yonit's Twitter or my Twitter. But we now have a newly minted email inbox of our very own. So you have to, all you have to do is email unholy at keshet-tv.com. Uh, unholy at keshet-tv.com or dash tv.com. That is the email address. Uh, meanwhile, do please spread the word whichever way you like. Um, review us, give us a rating. We love that. We're on Instagram at two Jews. But now you can tell us what you think of the podcast, what you'd like us to talk about, what guests you recommend. And send unholy in your questions for Oh, and questions for your needs as well. <laughs> unholy at keshet-tv.com is the email address. Yonit, we will see each other this time next week. We will. <laughs>